Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. It's a return to history today. Dude, we did this recap of the weekend the other day. It was great, fun weekend, but we got to return to history, which means I'm here with my dude, Eris Pina, CompuBox operator, just a fellow history lover like myself, Eris. What's up, bro? How are you? Everything's good, my friend. You know, unfortunately, winding down a vacation that I took from my uh, nine to five job, but Otherwise, things are all right, man. We got a slow week ahead of us in terms of like current boxing action. So you and I were talking about it. I thought it was a good time to revisit one of our favorite subjects, mythical matchups. So Ooh. here we are. Yeah, man. Uh, the other day, I put, out the, I put out the distress signal. I put out the SOS for the show. I said, people, if you got ideas for mythical matchups, send them our way. I was like overwhelmed. I didn't, I honestly, like I'd put out a couple feelers like a while back months ago, like, Hey, anybody have suggestions? I got like two responses and shit like that. And I was like, damn dude, it's kind of sad. Whoa, we got totally flooded. So we're not going to get through them all. We're just going to go through some random ones today. If we don't name yours, uh, we'll probably just have more shows. <laughs> we'll probably just do. I mean, more. we did three parts on biggest punchers, So I'm sure we're going to have more than just two on mythical matchups because this yeah. is a favorite subject of everyone. And it's October too. So that means that we got the International Boxing Hall of Fame vote coming up. You and I, uh, we got our I ballots that, to discuss man, at some point. Because I was yeah, going to totally forget, and it's going to be the 31st, and I'm going to get taken off the ballot. Yeah, man. We got our ballots to discuss. I, yeah. I got to fill out mine. So it's coming up. Uh, but in the meanwhile, mythic. Yep. Mythic. Yep. So we're genuine. But we swear we're not just saying <laughs> we got the ballots right there. Um, now nah, we we got a lot of shit to talk about though because we got a lot of mythical matchups. So I'm just gonna start firing them, dude. I wrote them all down, tried to organize them. Like I said, if we don't get to yours, we will soon. I promise. But let's start with the first one from Instagram. We got JJ underscore Foster Gotti uh, and his idea. We got a fun one. I thought this one was pretty fun. Arturo Gotti versus Miguel Cotto, and that fight could have happened at one point. I mean, it was it ain't that far off. They were just kind of going in different directions, I think, at 140 pounds. But, and also, I don't know if Gotti wanted to make 140 pounds for very long at that point. However, uh, that's a fun fight. I mean, Gotti's in fun fights. Cotto was in a lot of fun fights. What do you think that happens in that one, dude? I mean, you got to favor Cotto in that fight, regardless. I mean, Gotti, as good as he always was, and he was a, I mean, he was a hell of a fun fighter. That's the reason why he got inducted into the Hall of Fame and a legend for that one of the all-time great action fighters. You know what I mean? I'm not putting him on the same level as like Assad Muhammad or something, but God, he holds his place in history. And for you and I, when we came up as fans in the nineties, God, he was always, you know, just must see television regardless. You know what I mean? Whether he was fighting um, Tracy Patterson when he first made his HBO debut to the unknown Wilson Rodriguez and that dramatic war that kind of solidified what the early days of HBO boxing after dark ended up being. Um, to you know you move on to like even the fights that no one expected were going to end up being wars the uh the ivan robinson fights um his fight with calvin grove which no one talks about in terms of god he was but that one's criminally that's, true. that's up there dude and that, and that never gets talked about yeah it's always ruelas and rodriguez yeah, yeah. and obviously because those were fights that were on either pay-per-view or hbo the uh calvin grove fight was on what like abc or something back then that was after god was already like that, a non-champion yeah. i think he'd given up his belt yeah but Grove, who was already way past that former champion, gave Gotti the business that fight. He put up a hell of a fight. Regardless, Gotti just he always he always command the wars. And Cotto, I the thing about Cotto, of course, you know, we've watched him come up the way he was developed by top rank and he was featured on pay-per-views and HBO and matched very, very well from the very beginning. You saw him against guys like Lovemore Endu and Victoriano Sosa and um others, the way he was 
he was being slowly built, but like, you know, he had that pedigree and you already saw it early on the way he was like crouched and everything. And little by little, he was just getting more and more fundamentally solid. And by the time he beat Kelson Pinto for his first, for his first belt, excuse me. Um, you know, he was almost like a finished product by the time I think he moved up and beat um, Quintana for the, for the welter, like a, for the um, bacon welterweight belt. That's when I think prime Cotto. Came yeah, I in. didn't, I didn't expect him to do that to Quintana. I thought Quintana would give him a lot of trouble, honestly. Absolutely. And this was before Quintana beat Paul Williams, right? It was right. It was around then. I don't remember precise. I'd have to look. I just remember that I thought style wise, ah, Cotto's moving up and Quintana's, you know, kind of a tricky guy. He might give him some problems and no, he didn't at all. Yeah. But <laughs> if you just, I mean, like you, it, it would be one of those type of fights, Cotto and um, Gotti, that their styles would mesh well, very, very well. Cotto wasn't a runner. Like, he could box well, but he was a guy that was a pressure fighter moving forward. Gotti wasn't going to run away from you at all, obviously. And Gotti had underrated boxing skills. So I think they would probably try to go, you know, match both and both. But at some point, they're going to go trade the heat. And there's a good chance Gotti could clip him and wobble Cotto because Cotto could get hit. He could get hurt. And we saw that and dramatically against like um, Ricardo Torres and others. But at the end of the day, I think Cotto's overall skill would, you know, overtake Gotti and stop him late. I have to agree, dude. I mean, I know that um, <clears throat> Gotti's a sentimental favorite for a lot of people. Um, you know, I post shit about Gotti and people are like the goat, the goat, the greatest. And I'm like, I, I understand what you're saying, but yeah. no, he wasn't even remotely close to it. And Obviously, though, in terms of action fighters, he's easily one of the greatest action fighters of the last 25 to 30 years. Oh, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be arguing any of that, of course. But, yeah, the tendency to get sucked into a brawl, the uh, generally speaking, he had a lack of plan to fall back on if something didn't work. And, and only, his swelling, man, before even the fight would start. Yeah, the, the cuts, the, yeah. the scar tissue, the swelling um yeah i mean he got touched up and it would be kind of just like niagara falls <laughs> so i mean that's there are a number of things going against him in in that you regard. remember in the rodriguez fight where that doctor got way too over dramatic is the only time i've seen a doctor stop being an asshole in the corner and he was like cover your eyes he first he yells at um he yells at uh joe what was the corner's name joe um wasn't joe goosen obviously it was a uh, you know what i'm talking about the guy with the glasses that was famous yeah. <sighs> shit he was from new bedford too so i should know his name like he was a massachusetts resident but you know what i'm talking he always had the the um in his mouth and everything yeah god his last name escapes me really quick yeah he always had the, the q-tip yeah 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 the, yeah and first of all, yeah i should have known doctor, the doctor yells at him and joe susan said don't push me god damn it <laughs> like he straight up yells at him like he's yeah, like, well, a, like he's like I, let me work on the fucking cut bro because yeah, exactly. you're just like like I need my minute to work on the cut. And like the you know? doctor is like almost, you can feel like he's just on television, so he's gonna be like trying to you know get his moment. Because then he starts on Gotti. He goes, "Cover your eye," and then Gotti pulls there. He's like, "Cover your eye. I'm stopping the fight." I never heard a doctor start acting like a dickhead like that, you know? Yeah, he's and trying he, to be the star dude or exactly, something. Exactly, exactly. And Gotti, you know, answered the questions and all that. But then he went out the next round, and knocked him out. But yeah, that's just. Yeah, dude, he's he's obviously had some wars, obviously had some great moments, but it was just, yeah, I think he's overmatched. And on top of that, Cotto carried his weight better as he moved up. And part of that was timing, blah, blah, blah. But I think Cotto just would have been, he might have even been the heavier puncher and uh, absorbing stuff better. And and on especially at 147 pounds, because Gotti just didn't. By that but time, gonna match them early on, like the Cotto that fought Ricardo Torres against Agati around that time could have been very explosive. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, that could have been that could have been disastrous for Cotto. It had been the wrong night, but at, you know, best versus best. Cotto, I, I, yeah, I'm not entirely sure you can give that to Gotti. Mm -hmm. Let's see, there was another actually, there was a lot of really good matchups that people had. Let's go to Teep to the Junk on Twitter. We know him pretty well. Uh, he's always supporting the show. Thank you, by the way. But he had a good one. A number of people had a bunch of them, by the way. So I had to kind of pick and choose. <clears throat> Sam Lankford versus Archie Moore. Shit. <laughs> yeah, I saw that and was like, all right, I'm writing that shit down. Um, you know, dude, it's Archie Moore, obviously 
up until a handful of years ago when the research was a little bit more complete and people thought, ah, well, Billy Bird actually might have the knockout record now after everything's compiled. I don't know. It doesn't really matter that much, to be honest. The point being, you know, Archie Moore, Billy Bird, who all those guys, young stripling, they could fucking hit. They knocked out a lot of fools. They knocked out a lot of human beings. Um, but then you have a guy in Sam Langford who's carrying his weight from lightweight. They're carrying that punching power from lightweight all the way up to heavyweight, fighting and beating the shit out of fighters way larger than him, uh, where it's I think it's probably more an issue of him just totally maximizing his skill and technique versus Archie Moore probably just having heavy hands at that weight or whatever. But even so, two supremely skilled fighters uh, both had incredible longevity. Obviously, Langford was never given the chances that Archie Moore was given, where Archie Moore kind of started out in that, uh, you know, Black Murderers Row group and almost like fought his way out of it in a way and got opportunities that a number of other fighters... By the time he got his title shot, most people's careers would have been done. Right. And he was, uh, he somehow managed to guide himself to opportunities that, well, not just himself, obviously, but point being a lot of those other fighters in the Black Murderers Row just simply never got to or mm -hmm. were never given. So, I mean, it's that's a really intriguing matchup, dude. I agree, man. That's I've never even thought about a fight like that, but that is really fascinating. And fuck, you know, the 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 amount like the the minds going against each other because both of them were brilliant minds in the ring. Moore was if you read about you know his techniques and what he thought about and how he proceeded with everything he did for each round, like you know, it's one of the great minds in boxing history, Langford the same way. And both guys, they'd be playing chess against each other, you know, trying to feign each other out of position, the moves, everything about it. Plus, both of them having one-punch knockout power, too, would have that ability that they both be aware that they can get cold, caught really quickly, and taken out. Um, honestly, I'm going to be – I'm going to say right here, it's probably flip a coin. Like, I want to slightly lean toward Langford, but, like, um, more could – easily on one day just take them out as well like it's one of those fights that if you match them up five days out of the week i think langford takes three out of two uh, three out of them you know they they each were stopped more than once totally so, and i mean with the longevity of their careers it's inevitable that would happen and langford coming up from lightweight moving up to heavyweight and fighting guys so much bigger than him and fighting as long as he did with his eyesight failing and everything as such like that he was going to have to take L's and sometimes get knocked out like against guys that were inferior to him. Like a guy like Fred Fulton, who's most famous for being blasted by Dempsey in what, 15 seconds or whatever. Yeah, something like knocked that. Knocked out Langford. Yeah, he got but, John Ruizd. Yeah, exactly. And he he knocked out Langford. And, but when you think about it, Langford was probably the superior, obviously, obviously the superior fighter, but a guy like, uh, you know, that was huge compared to someone like Langford, you know what I mean? Who was extremely small at that time. And could be compared to someone like Barbados Joe Walcott, who kind of came up the same way, even smaller than Langford. But same thing, moved on, you know, fought from the lower divisions and was knocking out guys like Chawinski at, at one point. So, yeah, it's, I honestly agree, dude. It's, it's pretty much a flip a coin type of thing. It could be whoever lands That's first. That's a fascinating fight. That is a fascinating is. mythical matchup. And um, one that would have been amazing to watch too. Like the type of thing where we talk about watching Mike McCallum and James Tony. And you say, yeah, it's always like the, the litmus for people that should like, you know, getting to the, and getting to the sport, they should watch a tape of that to see the skill and the technique involved in what they're doing, countering each other, yada, yada, yada. Back then, that would be the same thing. That would be a fight like that. Totally. Yeah, dude, you, you even look at like their, if you're trying to find some sort of weakness between them or something like that, you look at like their stoppage losses and yes. some of Moore's stoppage losses were to really, really good fighters toward middleweight or like just, you know, before he'd kind of developed into a full-size light heavyweight and they were mm -hmm. really good fighters, nothing to be ashamed of. And then similarly, you know, uh, Sam Lankford, most of the fighters who was getting stopped by were either late in his career or much larger than him. So it's kind of like, you can't really find much between them there. You know, you, you put them together at like uh light heavyweight or something like that. And you have a hell, a hell of a fight. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't know how you really pick that. I guess I would probably go with Langford just on durability overall, but I, but I'm not going to be mad at anybody picking more. Honestly, I might try to recreate that on fight night tonight. Now that, the, now that that was made, that's like pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, dude, do I'll find one of these, uh, you know, one of those old games where you like plug in all the, 
they have like computer yeah. games and shit like that where you try because i got yeah that's that's a fascinating like good one that's a really good one yeah but i, I got I slightly 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 lean toward langford if you match them up over and over yeah i thought that one was pretty cool um let's see there was another one that i thought was pretty interesting uh frederic avali on facebook i told you we got like a good spread i was actually surprised but uh he came up with azuma nelson versus alexis arroyo damn it's another really good fight dude there were a lot of really good ones i was i was impressed well, I, I, was I, like, I, what weight, though? Uh, I would imagine 130 that's me like 130 right yeah, yeah. i would imagine 130 because that's azuma's best weight and Obviously. it was still a pretty good weight for you know alexis arroyo so, I mean, that's probably a really fun fight. Arguello would sometimes drop decisions around that time to not even bad fighters, but it would just be kind of like decisions he probably wasn't expected to drop. Uh, like Villamar Fernandez, which we mentioned on the previous show. Right. Good fighter, but not, you know, not the kind of fight necessarily that you would expect him to lose. But he could he could be defeated. It was just that. I, I mean, Arguello personified like the, the everything that's, I mean, right about boxing and his stance and everything like that. Like he just, he did everything perfectly well. Like he had the perfect stance. He threw everything perfect, like, well, like, you know, his uppercuts, his combinations, he was tall, he was lanky. He was just, you know, the, 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 the a precise fighter. And then you master in like how much of a classy individual he was. And he just molded into like, almost like a God among men. But like you said, there were, you know, some things in his style that could be exploited like he wasn't the quickest on his feet he had to really set in um settle it on his feet to really let his combinations go and he could be touched up sometimes and i mean alfredo escalara who we went who we won the title from and subsequently beat him in a rematch arguello beat him from pillow to post don't get me wrong like arguello was more or less in control of both fights but after both of those fights arguello was heavily marked up as well you know and he was dropped in um and marked up in other fights too yeah both that lightweight and junior lightweight so like could be touched azuma nelson you know what else can be said about him from when he first came up uh fighting salvador sanchez and running them to the very limit to knocking out wilfredo gomez and then moving up to junior lightweight and starting that historic run like nelson as one of the past 40 years is one of the best fighters we've seen easily in the top 10 and um everything about him too they didn't call him the professor for nothing you know what i mean as his career went on and he was such an aggressive dynamo early on just kind of overpowering guys with his you know and bullying him and beating the shit out of him to where he like slowed down and you would just see the the nuances to his game and how he just exploited things and would just be able to pull decisions out like nelson was just uh, a class in itself too it would be a really good fight another one that would go down to the limit but i think arguello with his height and length and everything else would be able to hold him off for a very close decision but he would definitely have a lot of rough moments. Like, it wouldn't be easy at all. Yeah, one of the, and not to talk it down, not to talk down Azuma Nelson's performance against Sanchez at all, but I feel like a decent portion of that was, like, the element of surprise. Of course, he, absolutely. You know, they didn't really know precisely what they are getting into, and fair play, like, whatever, you know, it's mm -hmm. that's boxing. But I'm not going to say it doesn't count. You know, they didn't really know much about Azuma Nelson going in uh, you know, Mickey Duff and and all these dudes uh, they behind bringing him in and kind of getting him that into that position, you know, massive. But the element of surprise and assuming that's not there, you know, here and just but nonetheless at their best. Um, that's a tough fight, dude, because yeah. Zuma Nelson's a tough fight for anybody on his best night around that around that weight from 126, 126 pounds, probably to lightweight. <clears throat> but uh, at 130 pounds especially uh if not the greatest fighter at that weight clearly like top two or three or something like that at that weight and that's a pretty good weight class even in and, and the longevity that he held too because you know he was a standout throughout from the early 80s up until then and then even in the mid 90s when you thought he was going to go away after losing to jesse james leha and then he comes back knocks the shit out of gabriel rellos who you know, you got to put an asterisk on that. Rellis obviously was coming off the after effects of um, uh, beating Jimmy Garcia, who subsequently passed away, unfortunately. But still, no one thought Nelson was going to win that fight. And he had been away for a long time. He came back, knocked out Rellis, thrashed him, really. And then he goes on HBO Boxing After Dark, fights Leha, who had already looked like he had his number, and then beat the shit out of him on that fight, too. Like, 
First round, hit him with that fastball overhand right that he's famous for. Pow! And Leha just went down the canvas and looked like he got hit with a, you know, by a Porsche. Just laying there. And Nelson more or less toyed with him after that. Like, that was, I loved watching Nelson as a kid. Because even though he's in the tail end of his career, I just knew I was watching somebody special. And he carried himself in such a regal manner. And, you know, the handlers around him. And I loved hearing those drums outside the ring, which I've told you before it must have been intimidating as shit for any opponent for him because you got to fight that guy and then you just hear out there which you know and certainly not for you so earlier on especially in his career on the fights that he uh that he had on tv too they i I can't remember specifically which announcers but every so often they would instead of just calling him the professor they'd say the professor of boxing azuma nelson it was just it was great like it's one of the all-time great fucking nicknames in my opinion but it fit and i remember like obviously i'm I'm, i was not a fan at that time to remember him all the way back but i do remember his comeback and i remember you know his name and him him having just a really memorable nickname too but a really great fighter a fun fighter to watch a guy who would have given alexis arguello hell so however that fight ended up i mean i would probably lean toward arguello i think he's the better fighter overall like the greater fighter probably would have found a way to win and had the length had the had the jab to get it done and he had the inside game too if necessary he did yeah Yeah. he did kind of have a little bit of that corralis going on where like you know he he looked like he wouldn't have an inside game man you know and those body shots he could throw so like totally yeah he doubled over uh hawaiian punch um Andy Gannigan. Yeah, Andy Gannigan with body shots just destroyed him. And Andy Gannigan was a tough guy, too. So, yeah, I'd probably go with Arguello. But like you said, there were moments where he could kind of get robotic and get hit. So it would be a really fun fight. I wouldn't be surprised. Arguello would probably hit the deck in that fight, if, you know, briefly before you have to come back and rally. I'm not sure if he even stops Nelson. Probably doesn't stop him. Nelson doesn't, you know, besides the Sanchez fight where he was still young in his career and the way he puts to put the pace on that one. Um, if we're talking season, Nelson, this is definitely going 12 to 15. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, there's a possibility our way could break him down, I yeah. guess, but if he didn't one shot him, he, what usually wasn't that type of fighter where he'd like really go after somebody like that, unless he knew it was there. Exactly. Um, but no, that's a, like I said, a, some really fun matchups. That was another one. So let's see, let's go back. There were a shitload on Twitter. So let's go back to Twitter. Uh, our boy Stogio. I thought he had a, pro- a couple of pretty good ones, and I thought this was a sure. little interesting proposition. Uh, Stogio on Twitter asked Roy Jones Jr. versus Chris Bird and James Tony versus Mike Tyson. Winners face each other. Okay. So Jones Jr. versus Bird. So it's at heavyweight, obviously. Yeah, at heavyweight. I mean, mm. Roy Jones versus Chris Bird is kind of that's one of those like you know so much twitching so much posturing and fainting and stuff like that it it would have been really interesting to the quote-unquote purist but like it would have been like god damn it so frustrating for so much of the you know fight, it's you interesting know? because all these fights potentially could have happened back in the early 2000s you know when roy I, I jones think he said 2003 I'd well like, yeah that, that makes it wrong, like that. That makes, that's about this that makes sense because that's when tony moved up to heavyweight to knock out evander holyfield right after he beat um vasily jiroff and jones back in march of 03 because yeah that was that was 03 right mm-hmm. yeah. march of 03 he beat he moved up to beat john ruiz and no one was sure at that point if he was going to go back down to lay heavyweight because that was such a splash and he beat ruiz so convincingly not that ruiz was a world beater but you know it's still impressive in itself that the money was there and the intrigue was like oh is he going to fight holyfield is he going to fight tyson yeah 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 you know everybody yeah i remember he said that he wanted to fight lennox lewis but he'd only do it for 100 million yeah and there was even talk about him fighting Corey Sanders, which would have been disastrous in my opinion. But um, Sanders, I think, would have blasted his head off. Oh, yeah, because he actually had quick hands and would have, <laughs> yeah. he wouldn't have fucked around with him. He would have been like, oh, you know, jab, jab. He would have been like, no, buddy, we're coming after you. I think after what happened, yeah, there's no way. man. But um, in that time, if he had fought as a Chris Bird, that was another one, I guess. That was another name that was thrown out there. And like you said, Pat, that's not a fight that would have been exciting at the, at all. But it would have been intriguing, man, because Bird would have been the one guy at that division that would have been able to keep up with Jones in terms of hand quickness and just movement and everything. Because Bird, you have to remember, wasn't a natural heavyweight. 
when he uh when he was olympian back in the 92 olympics he was a middleweight before he um where he lost where was that bronze or civil medal uh he won the bronze or silver silver excuse me after losing to um cuba's great ariel hernandez and um when he turned pro he moved right up the headway just bulked up you know because he knew that's where the money was and various reasons and um it was always fascinating watching bird at heavyweight even if he wasn't the most exciting if you watched him early on when he was doing his thing on tuesday night fights and you know beating guys like lionel butler or you know a craig Payne, i want to say the guy a guy's name was and a few others um you know he he, he looked good but you were just kind of like eh but i mean it was still fascinating to watch because you hadn't seen anything like this since maybe like jimmy young you know and then when he turned when he finally made his debut on hbo and beat the shit out of jimmy thunder that's when eyes were open i remember watching that with my dad and thunder who was always a personal favorite a lot of us loved him back in the day because you know for the knockouts he scored and he was just all all around fun fighter to watch right but bird just then that was probably his most fun fight in terms of him dominating somebody because thunder couldn't do a thing with him and bird you know got more and more emboldened to start whooping on him and by the time the fight was was stopped bird was over there looking like roy jones flowing those flurries on him and thunder just you know looking like a low rent clubber lane trying to hold his hands up and getting his head knocked around in the swivel so all that being said but if you're talking about 2003 this bird that i was talking about was the late 90s by the time 2003 happened bird had already slowed down a bit you know i mean he was getting touched up more some of his fights were like he was eking out decisions against the likes of giants like jameel mccline or also guys more of his size but just awkward and wanky like fresno kendo so if you're talking about that bird i think jones can eke out a decision against him that's yeah he might dude he yeah. very well might he might be able to just kind of outspeed him he might be able to outbird bird you know what i mean i think he would have by that time bird had slowed up by 03 i could buy that yeah and then you and then you put so if we both agree let's say chris bird against the winner of james tony and mike tyson i mean to me that's Don't actually winner of james tony mike tyson that's actually and i know that mike tyson was not that guy by this time but if you put a James Tony who stands still on the ropes against any version of Mike Tyson, that that could be a really bad idea. You know, like, I mean, is it likely to be a bad idea? Probably not. I think James Tony probably takes it, but if he stands still long enough, could be bad. Tony was uncanny though, man. The guy could just take a hell of a punch. He, he doesn't get brought up enough in my opinion for in terms of all time, great chins. I mean, sure, he was rocked a couple of times. I think, you know, suffered a flash knockdown here and there. But Tony could take a tremendous shot. He did against tons of fighters. Um, always went the distance. Even like, late in his career when he got the shit kicked out of him against Dennis Lebedev in that sad fight that should have never taken place. He never lost his feet, you know. So um, I think by 03, when he was, I think, peaking again, like in his second, you know, and basically like his second prime almost, where he just, you know, he that was that he was fighter of the year at that year, right? 2000, 2000, 2003. I think so, yeah. And I mean, like, he was in shape, he was motivated, he was looking good. And if he was going to fight Tyson, I'm sure he would have been even more motivated than, than he was to fight Holyfield. And Tony, as slick as he was in Tyson at that point in 2003, he was still explosive, but with all the deficiencies he had going on and outside the ring issues he had going on, which at this point was at a height for him. Tony, if he had weathered the storm through four rounds, would have ended up stopping Tyson. Definitely. Probably, yeah. I think he probably so, wind up stopping him. At that point, we'd end up getting a rematch between Roy Jones and James Tony at heavyweight. That's how I would look at it, yeah. Which is, I mean, which is pretty interesting, to be honest. I mean, because that's, it's not the greatest style for Tony, whatever weight it's at. Because Tony is the kind of fighter who wants a fighter to, to come to him. Totally. And he's, he doesn't want to have to do the counter-punching bit. And, you know, Roy Jones would probably make him try to chase him just like in that first fight and then walk him into traps. He would. I don't yeah. know, man. And so, I don't know, you know, it's at heavyweight where Tony is not going to be weight-drained the way he was at super middleweight and he's not going to be like point to, yeah. um, struggling and all that. I think it would be a more competitive fight. I think it would have been, been a really good fight. Something that... um fans could have got into and everything but at the end of the day i think still jones with his style just would have been able to outmaneuver him and still eke out a decision jones in 2003 before he moved back to light heavyweight and drained himself and subsequently his career kind of faltered after that 
at heavyweight still, we, we, do, we just don't know, man. He only had that one fight. And I wish he could have stood there because the division was kind of open at that time for him to do some damage. You know, we, like I said, Tyson was past it, but he was still active. Uh, Holyfield was active, but he was, but he was past it. And besides Lennox Lewis, who he was never going to beat, or like the absolute giants of that division, there was guys he could have fought for massive amounts of money and definitely beat them. So that could have been pretty interesting. Roy Jones winding up on top in that 2003 mythical tournament. Exactly. <laughs> Would have been pretty crazy. How how it could have been had he just ignored Antonio Tarver's constant taunting. But, it, dude, you know, Tarver did it right. He was showing up at all the press conferences and public appearances. On it, man. You know what I mean? You say enough shit to somebody and get under their neck enough. And if that person believes that you're like, if that, play, if that person believes that, you know, you, they're nothing compared to you, then eventually they're going to come try to fight you. You know? Oh, man. Yeah, Looks it was like a mistake. Movie is going, so. It was a mistake. Shouldn't have gone, or should have, or he should have had Tarver come up. That's probably what he should have done. So like, all right, fine, come back up, come up here, then come up and fight me up here. That's probably what he should have done, but he didn't. Big mistake. <clears throat> let's see what else we got. Got a lot of shit. Um, let's see. All right, this was this was a pretty good one. I thought that it was a fun power puncher fight. Uh, it is, um, I'm trying to dent Aprerivan on Instagram. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Gennady Golovkin versus Julian Jackson. It's a fight that's been discussed on Twitter. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. I thought it was, Hey man, you know, puncher versus puncher. Who doesn't want puncher versus puncher? It's a pretty good one. Um, but I like I said I tried to kind of I told you earlier I tried to kind of keep some of the mythical matchups that we were suggested out of it because they were fighters whose careers weren't done yet or something Gennady Golovkin's still fighting but he's obviously but no him. this is this is definitely a mythical matchup that's worthy of talking about because of just like you said two of them being the biggest punches in the division's history um oof you know it is a fight that like a lot of people have talked about before not not to diminish it right now but like because it's so exciting and enticing to think about, you know, Jackson with his one, everybody's talking, I mean, I've said it too, like Jackson is probably the hardest one punch knockout artist you, a lot of people have ever seen. And not a, besides heavyweight, Wilder might be up there too. But like, you know, when you see a Julian Jackson fight and you see the way, you know, the highlight videos of him and the way things would go down and all that, like it was, dude was magic. You know what I mean? He just had to graze you and, you just lost all uh, ability of your body. But the thing that, you know, the catch with him too, is that if somehow you were able to reach his chin, you had a chance at him because he didn't have the greatest chin in the world. You know what I mean? And that's what made it really interesting is that like somehow you're able to hit him or really catch him. He could be wobbled. He could be hurt. Um, sometimes he could be starched. By the time he got up with Gerald McClellan, who had to take some ridiculous bombs himself, both low and on the chin, um, Jackson got caught himself. That was the first. That's something you know, I would compare that one to the firefight. Uh, I would compare that firefight to maybe Golovkin and Jackson. What would happen? I think that Golovkin with his chin and, you know, it's different to take a bomb from Canelo Alvarez, like no, dis no discredit to him because obviously he hits hard, but there's a clear difference between taking one of Alvarez's right hands and taking a Julian Jackson right hand. So it would be interesting to see if Golovkin, you know, that, you know, that famous um, clip of Golovkin's head, whipping like that after Alvarez catches him and then everyone's like oh that's an all-time great chin chin what if Julian Jackson took that right hand that he hit like Harold Graham with <clears throat> square in the face of Golovkin is he gonna be able to take the same shit like that and just stand there and just have his head whipped back yeah so yeah, well and that's the that's the question that's the question and the thing, at least in my opinion, when you're trying to compare like the punching power between like a Canelo and a Julian Jackson is that and again, it's not to slight Canelo or anything, but it's like at all, he, at all. he's he is he has figured out how to uh, work the technique and maximize his power yes. with the technique. So like it's like, you know, he's countering and like, you know, like really putting it into it, whereas Julian Jackson was just whipping shots. He was trying to take your head off completely. And and it wasn't, and it looked far more effortless, in my opinion. Like it was it was like you know, him and his lady had dinner reservations and you were cramping his plans at the moment. 
Yeah, and it could be with either hand, and it could it could be come at any time, and he'd throw also in combination, and they were all hard. It wasn't just like you know one massive counter that he's worked on for fucking three months in the gym just to land that one uppercut counter, you know, type of shit like he did against Plant, which yeah. was great. You know, don't get me wrong; it's just that against Julian Jackson, it's just a different it's a different story altogether. So yeah, is Golovkin's chin gonna hold up like that against Julian Jackson? But also, you, I guess another fair question is, Gennady Golovkin, you know, in his quote-unquote prime, <clears throat> whatever that is, he also had a pretty decent defense. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't getting hit as much as you might expect somebody that offensive to get hit. And uh, I'm not going to say, I don't think he would try to go in there the way he did against someone like Vanes, for instance, or like one of his yeah. goal opponents where he didn't care about getting punched because he knew they weren't a threat to him. I, I would say he would approach this more like he did David Lemieux. You know what I mean? Like just standing up and boxing and using his jab and probing and making sure he's taking the proper precautions and not trying to get like caught with anything stupid. Yeah, I don't I don't know that Julian Jackson winds up doing the moonwalk. Yeah. <laughs> that night. I think I think Gennady Golovkin might be able to just weather that storm. I think that that's probably what I would go with. I personally. agree. I agree. I think that Jackson is going to catch him couple of times Golovkin is going to box more like more like I said would box more like he did against Lemieux as opposed to how he would against someone like I said um you know uh Vanus or like Dominic Wade or someone of that nature but eventually Jackson's going to come in and the technique I think of Golovkin was better than Jackson's and um the chin of Golovkin's obviously is better than Jackson's so if Golovkin catches him and he's a monster hit him himself he's going to catch him and probably starch him at one point kind of like Joe McClellan ended up doing McClellan, like I said um, just a little bit earlier, took some massive shots, but when he finally broke through and caught Jackson with that beautiful combination, boom, boom, you see Jackson go skidding across the ring like he got hit by a truck, and then he looks up and he's, you know, cut and just cooked. Um, that was, was right there. I think the similar scenario right there. I'm definitely not going the distance, obviously, so I don't even think we'll go to the late rounds. I think by round five or round six, that's when it ends. I think that's pretty fair, yeah. One way or another, I don't think it goes to the cards. No. <laughs> but I think it's going to be like early, not early, I think like mid-round, so like five, six rounds at the or at the latest. Yeah, it's a good fight, though. Good Great. power puncher versus power puncher matchup. All right, so back to Twitter. We got Kim Hakonsen on Twitter gave a pretty good idea for a matchup, in my opinion, underneath the, uh, well, underneath one stable, a matchup we never got but could have gotten i suppose joe frazier versus ken norton okay yeah you know two guys both under the eddie fudge stable um they did spar countless rounds together both very familiar with their very close friends and that's why they vowed that they were never going to fight each other as well but um yeah it's a fight that could have happened especially it's one that's a glaring omission considering all the round robins that took place in the 70s yeah dude and i mean like that's you know we we've talked about this before like the kind of the four kings or whatever and the idea that Wilfred Benitez is kind of like the odd man out in that matchup and that he should some you know many of us believe that he should be included in that group um but then, yeah and, and because that's that's really the only reason I guess is because the loop wasn't complete or whatever but even so you know, I, here to, to add to that point, Pat, really quick, it's interesting because you remember the, the documentary from 1989, Greatest Champions? Yeah. With all the heavyweights? Larry Holmes was in that. Larry Holmes never fought Joe Frazier. Exactly. Larry, you know what I mean? Larry and Holmes well, and that's what I was going to say was that like so you like, have... He was including in that thing. You could have included Benitez in that group too. So Yeah, yes. and so you have Ken Norton and then Larry Holmes, you know, included into the group of... Frazier, Foreman, and Ali kind of, and I mean, whatever. I mean, I don't really care how you group them together if you don't group them together at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but still, but uh, Ken, does, yes. Ken Norton kind of does get a little bit of the short end of the stick, particularly for the controversial fights against Muhammad Ali, you know, the, the losses that many people believe should not have been losses. So e either way, you know, we just never wound up getting this fight. And style-wise, I think it's pretty interesting but it's really difficult to discount the fact that almost any time Ken Norton fought a serious puncher, that it, it didn't end well for him. And it wouldn't end well for this one either. I love Ken Norton. Yeah, you know, the guy had a very good style and an awkward style against a wide variety of heavyweights of the 70s that he was very successful against, but he always had trouble against punchers. 
And whether it was a giant beast of a guy like Foreman who knocked him around or a person who was built like a just, you know, a redwood tree like Ernie Shavers who knocked him out in 79. Um, Norton, you know, even Jerry Cooney when he was completely washed in 81. Like Norton just always struggled with those guys. Or Frazier, the rampaging, the way he was with his bobbing and his weaving, that absolutely a crazy left hook. There was no way Norton was going to keep him off. Norton didn't have the style to keep a, a, a pressure fight like Frazier off of him, you know? Um, it, it would have been really, really difficult. Norton wasn't, a, you know, a great mover like that. Yeah, he would have locked horns with him. Exactly. He would have eventually had to, you know, and Frazier just would have overwhelmed him. So eh, I say Frazier in like four. Yeah. And that's not a discredit to Norton, but Frazier just would have bulldozed him. Yeah, the, the dude who got really mad at us about Roy Jones might get mad at us about not, not respecting Kenny Norton in this one, but I... Yeah, I, it is what it is, and I love Norton. <laughs> he matches up well against a lot of heavyweights in history, but against Frazier. Yeah, it's it, he just didn't, didn't do well against punchers overall and didn't have an awful chin, but didn't have the greatest chin. He got yeah. hurt against Muhammad Ali, too, especially in that yeah. second fight. Muhammad Ali hurt him, and Ali wasn't a massive puncher. Um, but, I mean, yeah didn't do well against punchers and on top of that his style he was very squared up a lot of the time um and it would have been a a very it was a very like it was a variation of the crab defense that george foreman and archie moore would use but it wasn't like you said it was more awkward and how he would like wave and do things like that so and he had a really good jab but it's just that i think that he would end up being a bad position against joe frazier and eventually wind up catching that left hook a few too many times so yeah i agree I think that's pretty fair. That's a fair assessment, but nonetheless, a fairly intriguing matchup that we never got. One that was, you know, one that we missed out on. Could have been interesting at at one point in like 73 or 74 or something like that. But um, let's see. Uh, There was another one here that I thought was really good that I thought we should talk about. Where did it go? There it is. All right. So our boy, 1980s boxing on Twitter. Yes. I made the Hall of Fame. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I figured I'd, I I won't use his real name just in case he doesn't want us to, but he's on Twitter and he's got a lot of good chronicles. Very, very knowledgeable stuff, man. I enjoy totally. his content. Yeah, yeah uh, seems to always be listening to or watching the show, which we appreciate. And he came up with a good matchup that I liked a lot, and that's Manny Pacquiao versus Wilfredo Gomez at Featherweight. Mm. Ooh, Featherweight. Okay. See, that makes it different because that junior featherweight would be an easy pick to pick Gomez because that was Gomez's dominant weight and Pacquiao was still, I would say, still fine-tuning to what he ended up becoming. But at featherweight, he was starting to already put the pieces together. You know what I mean? Yeah, he was still yeah. a little raw. He was still a little raw and a little wild, but you, you saw everything coming together. And at featherweight, by featherweight, Gomez was already starting to slow down. So, yeah, this is an intriguing fight. It's, it's almost, yeah, it's got a very kind of crossroadsy feel yes. to it. Totally. One guy's totally. going up and the other one's going down, but mm-hmm. they, if they meet at just the right time, and it's a lot of punching power too. Um, that's that's where I mean I'm always gonna love that puncher versus puncher matchup, even though even though they often wind up being like kind of like an MMA, like when they say, All right, well, and then they have two guys who wrestle really well. What usually determines it is some other style, you know, who who's the better puncher or who's the better jujitsu or whatever. And it's similar life, I feel, in boxing. Sometimes you get the puncher versus puncher matchups, and it's just whoever's the better boxer is the one who winds up winning. But either way, you know, it's fun. It's going to be explosive. Manny Pacquiao at that point was still pretty wild, hadn't really been honed in by Freddie Roach yet. Um, but he was he, getting there. He definitely was getting there, but he could get caught. He could always get caught. You know, a guy, like I mentioned earlier with Golovkin and have said numerous times, when you have somebody who throws a lot of punches, they're going to be open to get hit more. That's just the nature of how it is. But, um, you know, Manny Pacquiao could get caught. Mm-hmm. He definitely could get hurt. And Gomez was a puncher, man. The problem was, of course, Manny Pacquiao, also a massive puncher at featherweight. Massive. And at that point, like you said, it's a crossroads fight. Gomez was already starting to diminish a little bit. So he wins. He loses the first time he goes for the featherweight title, he loses to Salvador Sanchez. Moves back down to junior featherweight, makes a couple of defenses, most notably the epic war against Lupe Pintor. And then he decides to come back and move back up to featherweight after Sanchez's death to challenge um, his, uh, Sanchez's uh, successor, um, Juan Laporte which was like, you know, they called it the Battle of uh, the Civil War Battle of Puerto Rico. 
And Gomez beat him, you know, comprehensively in a 12-round decision, but it was clear even in that fight, even though he won, you know, wide, that something like he was already just not the same guy he was at one point. So if you put him on 1984 Gomez by the time he wins that right before he fights Azuma Nelson and gets overwhelmed and stopped against the Pacquiao that was on the rise, I think Pacquiao kind of does the same thing. Yeah, he he obviously caught, you know, the part of his coming out party, Lilo Ludwaba. Yeah. You know, and then totally just pulling the wool over fucking everybody's eyes with, well, no, that's not the right. Just, I guess, surprising everybody, not wool, with with Marco Antonio Barrera. And just, yeah, that version of Manny Pacquiao, I think, is going to be really, really difficult for Gomez to beat. But and Gomez is going to want to stand and trade with him at some point, too. He's going to get really prideful. He's going to get, part, you know, and he's going to want to sit there and try to try to go with it. And if he does that, he's going to get overwhelmed. You know, by the time he was just wasn't going to be able to handle the heat. And with his face too, like Gomez had a tendency to really swell up around his cheekbones. That's and true. Yeah. yeah, it's it would be a long night for him. But I do think that it could be a little bit more interesting at 122 pounds. Oh uh, my god! At 122, Gomez's prime. I think he beats the shit out of Pacquiao at 122. Yeah. Our our guy tried to keep it like he I, I wouldn't I wasn't trying to do like hard rules with the yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the eight weight classes last time like we were just trying to have fun or trying to come up with ways to not get too wild with the matchups really exactly but, um, but yeah at 122 pounds I think that it's a I'm not entirely sure I'd bet against Pacquiao but it could be a far more interesting fight and a far more difficult fight for him I think Gomez at 122 I would favor at 126 I favor Pacquiao. I wouldn't argue too much with you, dude, especially Manny Pacquiao having to make that weight. Exactly. He was, he was draining a little and bit. And even then, like, you know, we just mentioned the differences between 122 and 126 Pacquiao were, like, very different. Like, we're already there. 122 Pacquiao was wild. And as strong as he was and everything, like, if a guy like Agapito Sanchez could hit him up and make him struggle, I, Gomez would have tore him up at some point. It would have been an exciting fight. Gomez definitely would have got hit, but... Gomez at 122 before his outside vices and everything else took place in the Sanchez beating was incredible. And you put him like the one that beat Carlo Zarate um, against a guy like Pacquiao at 122. Yeah, that's a tough one, man. That's a far tougher one. So So going forward, uh, J underscore Sparks 101 on Twitter. (laughs) Matthew Saad Muhammad versus Bob Foster, light heavyweight. Not going in the distance either. <laughs> Wowza. Yeah. So I mean. Hi, yeah, yeah. I I mean, just give it to me. I'm I'm getting excited just thinking about it, really. <laughs> you know, like, wow. You're like, you know, you're just saying just stick it in my veins, right? Yeah. Just put it right into my bong and I'll fucking <laughs> snap it right now. Absolutely, bro. Just, just give me that pack right now. Give me that Saad Muhammad Bob Foster pack I can just put up and just blast my brain. Yeah, I <laughs> um, shit. Um, <laughs> I mean, because obviously you got one of the hardest punchers at light heavyweight. Yeah. Um, dude who was just absolutely clean in clocks. Vicente Rondon caught the wrong <laughs> end of it. Mike Quarry. I mean, you know, just everybody. Foster contributed to a lot of brain damage for the 70s light heavyweights and subsequent decades afterwards, absolutely. And he was so angry, even despite knocking everybody out, was just he so was mad. Very bitter, <laughs> angry. You know, he became a sheriff later on, so that explains it. Just just very angry at all the time, yeah. Like, you know. even later on in life, in his career, you know, I've told him, we've joked about it with you, Corey, and Grave. I've told you that there's photos in magazines of Bob Foster literally tearing up photos of Virgil Hill because Virgil Hill had the nerve to break Bob Foster's late heavyweights defense record. You know? And it's like, man, what did Virgil Hill ever do? Do you need to go around bashing him, you bitter asshole? Like, what? Would, would Quicks, let, let North Dakota have their, you know, let, I mean, would seriously, what else does North Dakota have anything to cheer for? You got to go over there and bash <laughs> Virgil Hill, you bum? All right, I call Quicksilver him was good, man. He gets he was under a very good player, but not to veer off too quickly, man. Yeah, the, that's your thing. Bob Foster was just a brute, man. From when he knocked Dick, Dick Tiger's poor head into the nosebleed seats of Madison Square Garden to where he just, you know, terrorized the light heavyweight division up until around 1974-75. Um, yeah, no one had any, no one had ever really seen anything like that. Especially a guy like, you know, as tall and lanky as he was and just blasting people with one punch or just brutalizing them over the, over the distance, you know, 
comparably, you would see something like that with like Sandy Sadler back in when he was featherweight champion. And then you would see that, you know, a decade later with Tommy Hearns, what he was doing with welterweights and beyond. So Foster was an anomaly back then. You know, he was tall, he was skinny, he was lanky, he wore raggedy trunks. He just looked like a guy from, you know, another era, but he could destroy you unless he moved to heavyweight where he was outpowered and he got brutalized. But if you're talking light heavyweight, it's hard to match up against him. Yeah, he could have been somebody who I suppose could have moved to cruiserweight or something like that had he come along a couple decades, like a decade or two later, but didn't get that opportunity. And unfortunately, the only guys at heavyweight that were there for him to get big money opportunities against were the wrong fighters. <laughs> you know, got Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, who just, you know, knocked his dick in the dirt, unfortunately. Poor guy. <laughs> And even before then, guys like Doug Jones and Ernie Terrell and stuff were just beating him around. So it kind of just told Foster. But that's where the money was. You know, even in the 70s, there was no money in the light heavyweight division. So Foster was forced to move up to challenge himself against these guys. Well, and and he had a right to be pissed off. We've talked about it, too. You know, the sanctioning bodies fucked with him. Um, And and I mean, I don't know if it was necessarily because he's Bob Foster, but so much as because they're the fucking sanctioning bodies and they've always been fuck boys and fucking around like motherfuckers. (laughs) <laughs> that's sorry guys but you are but in any case uh I'll yeah you, you know my friend. <laughs> fucking jerks but you know bob foster was just a monster he could hit like an absolute fucking truck so you put him in against somebody like matthew Saad muhammad though whose signature move is getting blasted and then coming back to do some blasting of his own you know and it was only just the absolute other toughest fighters at light heavyweight who could take it and who could overcome him guys who were great in their own right so i mean it's that's a that's a goddamn tough matchup not in terms of just you know power but that's tough i don't know i mean i kind of probably would side with foster just because i feel like i so do i so do i i don't know that matthew Saad muhammad is going to be like you know rallying back from bob foster combos that's a it's tough, tough man especially if foster ends up landing one of those whipping left hooks that he landed against tiger or mike quarry i don't care oh. who you are you can be the king kong or some shit and you're the you're way dick out. tiger just like bah, like he like violently goes yes. to the canvas you know like dude if there was no canvas there dick tiger would have gotten knocked into the new york subway system that day right i think under i think under msg is the a a c and e train he would have been on his way down to the Bronx. So, I mean, you know, that's. Yeah, that's there's there's like two fan him. angles of that knockout, too, from the stands. Yeah. And it's just like. Ugh. Well, yeah, because Foster throws the shot and then he just on reflex comes back, you know, and it, it's like one of those, you know, when you had an action figure as a kid. Oh, no, here's the best example. When you would take a G.I. Joe toy, right? And you would like twist it up because remember, they had the rubber insides in them. And if they didn't break, you twist it, twist it, then they'd yeah. spin move. That was kind of like what Foster did. Come <laughs> yeah, dude. And then Dick Tiger winds up looking like a Pez dispenser, just yes, with his head just so. absolutely pop, you know. Or Mike Quarry, where Foster legitimately a... thought he died. And then you see Foster sitting in the corner, you know, just pondering it, what he did with the power that he has. It wasn't even until we did that Quarry family episode that I saw that photo from overhead of yeah. Mike Quarry, like with the Robert Hellenius, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Absolutely. stare, and then Bob Foster's going like this, looking over him, like, is he dead? <laughs> Jesus. So, and I then, mean, and then Foster's trainer coldly telling, coldly walking over to him and just saying, hey, man, business is business. You have to say, like, if he's dead, whatever. <laughs> hey, well, at least Bob Foster wasn't digging his grave. Yeah, seriously. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor. Yeah, you know, he was only fucking putting guys in nursing homes, but he didn't dig any graves. So we're okay. No, that's a that's a brutal like matchup. That that's a really good matchup. I like Foster in that one. That's a brutal matchup, and I'd go with Foster too. But I mean, you know, you but I guess you just have to put the caveat on there that Saad Muhammad catches him just right. It could be lights out for Foster too. So, but that's fun. Totally fun. All right, let's see. Another one. Let's go back to Facebook. Take care of those guys. Trey Weatherly, Trav Weatherly, sorry, on Facebook, had two good matchups concerning Jack Dempsey, both of which have been pondered but are fun to talk about, in my opinion. Harry Greb and Jack Dempsey. Mm-hmm. And Jack Dempsey versus Harry Wills. 
I mean, they've been talked about before, but they're worth talking about. You know, Jack Dempsey reportedly sparred with Harry Greb. I think it was two days in a row, somewhat mm-hmm. publicized. Uh, and supposedly Harry Greb was giving him the business, which is not super surprising because Jack Dempsey got his ass kicked in sparring all the time and by like absolute scrubs too sometimes. Um, and also on top of that, the controversy surrounding Jack Dempsey never having fought Harry Wills, who was the top contender for his heavyweight title for like three years straight. Um, you know, they're worth, they're worth mentioning. Yeah, absolutely. And their fights, again, that's been pondered and talked about throughout the decades. Absolutely. You know, fantasy, fantasy fights. Um, Greb, despite all the shit that he gets on Twitter, uh, <laughs> people just saying, look at this guy, you know, I could ice him. Like everybody always tries to like bash Harry Greb for whatever reason, because the only, because people get mad that he's considered one of the greatest fighters in history, if not the greatest, yet there's no actual footage of his fights. <laughs> and the only footage People that we get pretty there. surly about it. It's pretty they get funny. Really angry about it. And the only foot and they get pissed off because the only footage that is out there is him play sparring <laughs> with Philadelphia Jack O'Brien. You know? So it's, it's like it's crazy though, dude. And I'm sorry to steal it from you, but, oh, it's, no, but I, it has to be mentioned because it happens all of the time when mm-hmm. I post photos of like really old fighters and they have some funky stance and they're like, they fought like that back then. Oh my God. And I'm <laughs> yes. like, dude, did you not realize that they, that they had posing and comedy and satire back then too? Are you dumb? Like, you know, they weren't going like that when they were fighting, you know, there's video of them. They're just posing like that. Cause it's a pose, you know, but anyway, the same type of shit with the grab footage, like, you know, like he's not fighting. Yeah. It's anyway. <laughs> it's whatever but um that all that being said man greg by all accounts and i really wish there was footage out there there was rumors that there was for years there's always there's rumblings hey there is a fight that surfaced or there's this that happened or that happened or some shit or whatever it is and everybody gets excited we're in we're about to be in the year 2023 i think it should be like kind of calm down up on 100 years from his death yeah we're at the point now if something was going to surface you think it would have surfaced by now and if anything had even survived at that point it might have just and if anybody's gotten and is holding on to it you guys suck yes yes totally a thousand percent fuck you but moving on um, (laughs) by all accounts from everything we've read because there's tons of documents out there man unfortunately if we don't have the footage he was as one of the most popular fighters of the of his of his era and of all the fights that he competed in against the highest level of boxing back then, there were tons and tons and tons of writings on him. So we get the perfect sense of what kind of fighter he was, how he acted, everything else about him. And with all that being said, man, and how you know tough and fearless he was, I think he whoops Dempsey. Dude, I, I think that he's just the kind of fighter that, you know, Dempsey... He basically did everything Dempsey did except better. You know, Dempsey was the kind of guy, I, I, there's a really big mistaken view of what Dempsey was as a fighter. He was ferocious. He was unstoppable. You couldn't stop him. Yes. And then you watch some of his biggest fights and you're like, God damn, he looked like shit. <laughs> and he wasn't active either. He had one of the weakest reigns in heavyweight history. Like the the thing is, like Dempsey was one of the uh, one of the biggest sporting heroes of the twenties. And the twenties is always like the nineties. His reputation preceded him. You know, it's yeah. in the nineteen twenties. He was the darling of the sports world. As long, even bigger than I would suppose, like Babe Ruth or someone around there. Like Dempsey, they were damn guy. close. They were and, definitely damn close. And you know, people from that era that you know, where they were active in the twenties and didn't, you know, fall apart from the, from the wall street drop and then the subsequent depression. And we're still, you know, around in the fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties, dude, they absolutely would speak in hushed tones about Dempsey. And if anyone even dared to say anything about Dempsey, do you like, Oh, you know, well, Rocky Marciano might beat him. Joel Lewis would have beat Jack Dempsey or, you know, even if they were around in the sixties and seventies, Ali and subsequent. Yeah, they were still going on. Yeah, they would go wild on you, absolutely wild on you. They didn't play that shit. Like dudes, you know, Dempsey just had everybody in a tizzy back then. Man, his style, the ferocity, his his overall look. He had this aura about him. You know, he was married to um the the Hollywood uh, uh the famous Hollywood actress back then. What's her name? Um, oh God, Estelle or Estelle no. Taylor. Yeah, yeah, Estelle Taylor. Estelle Taylor, like. 
Dempsey was just a superstar, you know, and he and he was carried and he carried himself like one. And his fights were just like magic too. He didn't fight often, but when he did, you know, usually they were really exciting. Like when he knocked out a guy like George Chapantier, who was way too small for him and the late heavyweight champion, but like it was such a big event that, you know, caused the first million dollar gate. Or when he fought Luis Furpo, who we've talked about before, who was so ungainly and wild, that wouldn't have been a factor in any other era in heavyweight history. But back then, if you if you witnessed that fight live, people were talking would talk decades about you know seeing Dempsey go flying out the ring, or you know fights of that nature. But then think about it too, man. If you saw him against uh, Tommy Gibbons, he goes 15 rounds and he looked like shit in that fight. And then aside from the seventh round in the rematch with Gene Tunney. Dempsey got whooped in every single round of that entire fight. He barely and knocked down in the next round. And knocked down, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody forgets to, to mention that part. Absolutely. And Ray Arcel mentions too in the book um, in the corner that Dave Anderson wrote in the early 90s. He mentions that he witnessed Dempsey in his first fight in New York City when he first came in before he fought Jess Willard. And he fought a guy by the name of uh, John Lester Johnson, a black fighter who's completely forgotten today from way back then. And he said that John Lester Johnson slapped him around for 10 rounds easy, didn't even break a sweat in that. But it was, since it was a no decision, he, you know, Dempsey kind of like acted like he didn't care, but it, it shows a, there's a precedent there. You know what I mean? Um, after that, Arcel also says that witnessing Dempsey beat Jess Willard, he thinks that that Dempsey would have beat anyone in history. But yeah, man, there, there's a limit to Dempsey. There really is. That's all I'm going to say. There's just I, like, I, and he I was get built it, up and but... built up. But if you, if you look at it through like, you know, just, uh, not rose-colored glasses, you can see that there's a lot of heavyweights that probably would have whooped him. I don't consider Dempsey a top 10 heavyweight in history. Sorry, no. I don't think he is. And I and I get it, dude. Like, you know, but yeah, a lot of the image of Dempsey is based off the Willard fight and nothing else. Yes. And, it's just, I, and that it's fight true. is still shouted in controversy 100 years after the fact, too. Because, like, how does someone, I mean, Dempsey was a ferocious fighter, but how does someone acquire all of those injury i'll get all of those injuries in only a few rounds like that like definitely like willard suffered some ridiculous injuries in only four rounds that no which one are could... which the, which are somewhat exaggerated too though but he yeah, but he okay. did get fucked up yeah like i mean my man's face was just i don't know yeah no he he did get fucked up but like but they get it's almost like a game of telephone where they get worse every time you hear it. Like yeah, yeah, broken yeah. jaw, Absolutely. a broken orbital, he's missing four teeth, he is missing his face, he's missing his dick. <laughs> like, you know, and it fucking just escalates yeah. from there. And then and you had like, doctors no. until the end of his life spinning yarns about how, you know, saying, Oh, well, guys, maybe I did put plaster of Paris in his gloves. Oh, actually, you know, if you watch the footage over here, yeah, you see such an iron rod and put it in Dempsey's like such Yeah, confirmed was a piece of shit. He, he was a crazy asshole. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so I'm not trying to just like shit on Jack Dempsey. It's just that I think that like, <clears throat> yeah, I just, I just feel like it's a lot of the image is probably a little bit overblown. So I'd probably go with Greb to, to even outwork him dude in that fight. He's yes. just, by... I mean, Greb wanted the fight definitely did, man. You know, if like Dempsey. And that's had... supposedly how their sparring went too, was that Greb was just giving him the business and outworking him, just giving him work. Totally. I'm sure Greb would have absolutely jumped to the opportunity to fight Dempsey. And that fight would have been huge, huge at the time. Because like we said, Dempsey was the darling of the 20s. But guys like Perry Greb and Mickey Walker were massively popular at that and during that era as well. So Yeah. And Walker, you know, I would have loved to see something like that. But Walker is, I think, just a little bit too small. Like even Greb had. And Walker too, I think, came. Well, yeah, I don't know if he would have been able to go at that. And Walker still was by the time it was after the Dempsey era was over, Walker made his move to heavyweight. So, yeah, yeah, by by the, their plaz just would never have crossed. But exactly. yeah, that it might have been fun. But then I think that you put Dempsey against Harry Wills, dude. I don't know. I mean, I think Harry Wills had the kind of style where he might not have been fleet as f fleet of foot enough to get yes. away from Dempsey, and it could have gotten ugly had he not been able to like put Dempsey away or something like that. But uh, you know, a couple years, like maybe like a year or so after Dempsey had won the title, once you start getting into the 1920s, Wills dipped pretty, pretty fast. But yeah, um, by the end, by the by the end of the 20s, when Wills never got a title shot, there's you know he lost to Sharky, who was on the who was on the rise. 
uh, by DQ, but by Uskadun, all accounts, I think Uskadun knocked, knocked them out viciously. Yeah, that fight and, was filmed. The Sharky fight, I don't, mm. I've never seen footage of. I'm not even sure if it was filmed, but by all accounts, Sharky was whooping his ass when um, Will's got DQ'd in it. So yeah. So I, I, don't know. I think it's an interesting fight. That one would I mean, have been, and, you know, by and the thing is in history, Pat. Like I don't mean to cut you really quick, but like yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of people feel that like I've noticed there, there's always been a theme that Will's was ducked, which he was. To a degree. I mean, like, they did try to make the fight. There's even tickets that were printed for it, and things were supposed to happen. So I don't yeah. want to say it was an out and out. It was done. planned, was... I think, twice. And it just, yeah, like, various times reasons, fell through. Yeah, it just kind of fell through for whatever reason. So you can't say he was completely ducked. It was planned for it to happen. But um, at the, that being said, everyone always, there's always been, like, a consensus, at least with some historians, that Wills just would have thumped Dempsey easy. But like, you, you made the certain points. I'm not sure if it would have been that easy, too, because of Wills' style. It wasn't, like, the style that, like, he... Dempsey, you know, could was still a beast at that point, and um, it would have been tougher than most people expected. Like Wills could have got caught, he could have got clipped, and depending on when the yeah. fight took place and the and you know, Wills is down agree, and whatever. Yeah, so it. I, I the, think Red beats him. I think Dempsey might actually beat Wills. I don't know, but Wills could beat him as well. That's I, I know, and that and that sounds super illogical too. And I don't want people to listen to that and be like, "What, dude? You think Greb would beat him, but not Wills?" And I'm just yeah. like, "Yeah." I think a lot of it's style, dude, points, and time. Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's just depending style on when the Wills fights when the Wills fight happens. If you talk to him in his prime, he probably could beat Dempsey, but Dempsey could caught him, you know, easily. But I think Greb's style is just tailor made to give Dempsey fits. So yeah, like stay inside of his power, you know, kind of yeah, frustrate him and other, yeah, everything. You'd outspeed him out everything and just. Yep. I tend to I tend to think that that's probably how it would go. And 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 on top of that, Greb was tough as fucking nails. He was yes. not the kind of guy that, you know, he was people want to talk about with the brine on his face, whatever. I get it. But it's like Greb was a literal tough motherfucker. He fought for at least five years totally blind. Or no, sorry, not totally blind. Totally blind in one eye. Excuse me. <laughs> totally blind. Yeah. He didn't have any eyes. No. But no, nah, dude, uh, I I apologize because we're gonna have to cut it a little bit short, but I like I said we were gonna try to jam as much as we could in there. And on top of that, we have a ton, dude. I still have like a full page of mythical matchups that we need to get to on a subsequent show, which we will. But mm -hmm. in the meanwhile, dude, I appreciate you. You know, we were just throwing shit out, man, and I appreciate oh, yeah. that because it's always a lot of fun. And I appreciate everybody who who wrote in and gave us mythical matchups too. Very cool. Definitely. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I love talking about these things and like delving in and talking about the various scenarios you can go with it. So good stuff. For sure, man. Hey, if if uh, anybody listened in on the podcast apps, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Subscribe if you haven't already. Leave us a reply or a rating. And if you watch on YouTube, thank you as well. Subscribe. Leave us a comment. I'm trying to answer as many as I can. And also the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on social media like Facebook and Instagram. It's also on Twitter. So give us a follow there. But we're also individually on Twitter. My boy Eris Pina is on Twitter as Punch Zone Eris. Me, Patrick Connor. I'm there as Patrick M. Connor. So give us a shout. We'll say hi. Eris, we'll talk soon, bro. Absolutely. See y'all later. Later, everybody. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.